That line in that song, whom the Son sets free, he sets free indeed. It is indeed by the power of God, which is going to tie into our sermon this morning. Around the year 400, St. Augustine wrote in his confessions a prayer that got much attention. He wrote this, he wrote, Dear Lord, my entire hope is exclusively in your great mercy. And it's this next line that generated the controversy. Lord, grant what you command, and then command what you will. And what Augustine was referring back to is the testimony of Scripture, really from Genesis to Revelation, but we see it in Philippians 1.21. It is God who works in you, both to will, that is to want to obey Him, to seek Him, and to work, to actually please Him, to actually obey Him for His good pleasure. Well, what it generated was a controversy because the soon-to-be-declared heretic, Pelagius, saw that statement and he revolted against it with an argument that still pervades throughout Christianity today, often referred to as semi-Pelagianism. But he argued that contrary to God's clear word, people are naturally good. They're naturally good. They are not tainted in any way by the original sin of Adam, and they're fully capable on their own of living a life that is worthy of Christ and pleasing to the Lord if they should so choose. You don't need God's strength, in other words. You are like your own God. And that is a theme then that will come out in our text this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our very detailed, I realize, walk through the introduction to the letter to the Colossians, which runs through verse 14. We should finish that next week. But we're doing this on purpose because it sets the tone for what's coming in the rest of the letter, and it also applies to everything that we face today. So as you turn there, you can recall that there are three broad sections to Paul's intercessory prayer for the young Christians in Colossae, Christians he had never met. The first is the petition itself, which you find in verse 9 where Paul prayed that God would fill every Christian with the knowledge of his will such that they would be able to apply it to their lives and live that out within their context, their cosmopolitan context, not much different than ours. The second, which we started last week, was pointing to what the daily life of a Christian, what Christian conduct looks like when it is fueled by the knowledge of God, by prayer, by fellowship with the members of his church. And there were four marks of that that Paul lays out, and we'll get to those today. Third, the third section, which will be for next week, and it kind of also fits because it's the fourth mark of Christian conduct, but that is the thanksgiving and the praise that we consistently offer up to the Father for his divine and sovereign work in saving us by, through, and for his Son, Jesus Christ. And last week, as we started to examine Christian conduct, And what comes from the knowledge of God through his word, we addressed and we spent some time on the difficulty we face because knowing God and holding fast to his truth, which is the inerrant and authoritative Bible from Genesis to Revelation, holding fast to this is difficult because it is countercultural. It is completely countercultural because God actually sets the standards for what is pleasing to him, not man. He sets the standards for every aspect of his church and worship and what is pleasing to him. He sets the standards for all of life, and it's never up to us. It's not up to our likes or our dislikes. 
uh, sure, we rebel against him, but it is not up to our pride. It is not even up to our traditions. And this is very difficult for prideful people to accept. And so it's often ignored and scripture is often placed aside because through scripture, the Holy Spirit then works to convict us of our sin, to draw us back to daily repentance, to draw us ever nearer to a life that is pleasing to God. Now, this difficulty was captured quite well by the Genevan reformer, John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he starts those institutes with a focus on the majesty of God. And he points out the problem for us when we are coming to to the light of this holiness. He, He writes this, For such is our innate pride that we always seem to ourselves to be just and upright and wise and holy. And we do because we grade on the curve and we always think that we're on the top end of that curve. He continues by writing, for since we're all natural prone to, naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness, our own, seems quite enough to satisfy us instead of true righteousness, that determined by God. And since nothing appears within us or around us that is not tainted with very great impurity, so long as we keep our mind within the confines of human pollution, that is, living within our cultural context, Anything which in some small degree seems less defiled delights us as if it were most pure, just as an eye to which nothing but black had been previously presented deems something of even a brownish hue to be perfectly white. That's what happens when we use ourselves as a standard. And so we need the light of God in this dark world and within our hearts. And God has provided that to us, of course, in both the living word and the written word. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that light is Jesus Christ, John 1.4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines into the darkness, the world. And we know the light that comes through God's written word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we need this because we are numbed to the sin by the world around us, by the world we grow up in. And we need to be strengthened by God through his word to then conform our lives to him, something that is pleasing, something that is worthy of him. And that is where we pick up in verse 11, the strength that must come from God. Let's read our text. We're going to read starting in verse 9, just to keep it in context. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray indeed that you will shine a bright light upon it, that by the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, we would understand it and apply it to our lives, and that it will work a great change in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we considered two of the four marks that Paul lays out of what it looks like to live in a way that honors the Lord and is pleasing to him. You'll remember those two marks were bearing fruit in everything that we do and then increasing in the knowledge of God through his word. And this morning we come to the third mark, which is being strengthened. Now, in our world, 
that raises an immediate question. Do we need that? Do we need to be strengthened? Aren't we strong enough on our own? In other words, is the unbeliever or even the weak believer able to live a life worthy of God and one that pleases him? And today, I think if you go and you look and you listen, the common answer that you will get to that is yes. Even among church leaders, there is a gut-level reaction that approaches every issue from a standpoint of tradition. And unfortunately, traditions are often the result, not always, but often the result of tiny compromises made along the way that suddenly, years later, become normative to us. We've always done it this way. It can't be done a different way. Never returning to God's Word to question that. But we turn to tradition. There's another approach that people will take in order to say yes to this, and that approach is just we don't want to offend anyone. We never want to be accused of judging in accordance with God's word, and we never want to offend anyone. We deem that there are indeed 11 commandments, not 10. God seemingly forgot to write the 11th, and many of you know what that is. The 11th commandment is often said is, thou shalt be nice, and that seems to trump every other command of God. And so we want to say that people can indeed on their own, in their own way, live a life that is pleasing to God. But we miss the mark completely because God has spoken. And God has spoken to his people through his word. And that word is used by God, the Holy Spirit, to purify his church, to sanctify believers by convicting us of sin, by driving us to repentance, by drawing us ever nearer to the Son, in faith, so that we will be presented one day as that pure and holy bride of Christ. So the question is relatively easy to, easy to answer, though the world answers it differently. Is it possible to please God without faith, without obedience, without a knowledge of his will? And the answer simply is no. It is not at all. In fact, the Bible's clear on this. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so without getting sidetracked, in order to know what those rewards are, you have to then know what God loves and what God hates and, and be in prayer. So you can't do it on your own. This is something many have struggled with. The Puritan John Owen, the great English theologian, wrote a book that is quite famous, I wouldn't assume any it's famous today that people have read it, but called The Mortification of Sin. And if you look on Christian merchandising websites, the ones that will sell you cups and pens and posters with slogans, you'll often see a slogan that comes straight out of this, which is, keep killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, that comes right out of this idea of the mortification of sin. And in it, Owen is noting the impossibility of doing this on your own that you can't live a life pleasing to God, that you can't defeat sin on your own. You can only defeat it by the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. In other words, he is saying it's impossible without saving faith. You must be a follower of Christ. We remember Romans 8, 8 through 9 tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit does not belong to him. He says anybody can have a guilty conscience. Anybody can attempt to live a good life, depending on how we put that out there. But any attempt to truly mortify sin, to get rid of sin 
in our life without turning to Jesus Christ actually just brings with it a number of dangers to us, a great deception that can happen within our own hearts as we think that we are strong enough to do this. He lays out three that I'll just summarize. First, seeking to remove sin, to relieve a guilty conscience, to bring peace to your own soul and your own mind with, when you still neglect to deal with the root cause of sin, which is rebellion against a holy God, is actually not a result of love of Christ at all, but a love of self. And it's not a result of your love for Jesus that drives this and your desire to please him, but a love for self, to remove that guilty feeling, to feel self-righteous, to feel holy. Second, anyone who thinks that they've actually achieved victory over sin, and they think they've nailed it, I've done this on my own, they begin to rest in themselves in their own power. And that is the remedy of almost all false religion that teaches you to work your way there. And it is condemned all throughout the Bible. Romans 10.3, for example, points to those who remain outside the kingdom, who will face God's judgment and says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, you need that knowledge, and seeking to establish it on their own, working to feel holy, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now finally, The third point, the unsaved sinner, this is something I think we would find obvious. The unsaved sinner is going to find throughout life that he or she has never actually achieved victory over sin. That throughout life, they will simply exchange one sin for another. I got rid of the big one, I'm okay with this one. And throughout life, as you go through that, defeat becomes inevitable. And Owen closes this section to say that such an attempt to mortify sin without Christ deludes, it hardens, and ultimately destroys the sinner. Now the reason for all this is so that you understand there is a reason that when we go out into the world, we do not simply condemn people's behaviors and call on them to quit sinning, to make themselves holy. If you've ever done this or even watched it done, you see the confusion and the reaction because that person has no framework to understand what it is you're even talking about. No worldview grounded in God that would convict them to move in the direction you want them to go. What we call on people to do is to look to Christ, the Savior, to repent and turn away from their sin, but to turn toward something, first and foremost. To turn toward Christ. To place all of their trust in his perfect person, his finished work on the cross. Because we know, because God tells us that it is belief in Christ, it is submission to him as Lord that first and foremost frees one from the slavery to sin. That's the line that we just sang in that song this morning. Freedom comes through Christ. And then you become a slave of righteousness. And from that you see the fruit of obedience. You just can't call on people to obey. That is why Paul prays for the knowledge of God's will, a knowledge obtained through Scripture, through prayer, and a knowledge that will be evidenced in the life of every believer through bearing fruit, through growing in the faith, uh, through increasing in the knowledge of God, and submitting to His will in order to please Him. But this is impossible for anyone to do without Christ. You can't read a command and just simply do it. You can't achieve it. And no one knew this better than the Apostle Paul. He had tried to do it all right. We remember the passage where he's giving his resume 
Right? He was, he was circumcised the eighth day. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had been trained by Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He knew all the laws better than anybody else. And he was a rising star within Judaism. He was working his way to perfection. And then he met Christ. And realized there is no working your way on your own. And so he notes this third mark of the one who has faith. The Christian must rely upon God himself for strength. If you were to look at Romans 7, Paul expands on this very notion by looking at his own life. And he says, beginning in verse 18, he said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Here is one of the most religious men of his day. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. I know the law, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And jumping to verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not his own will, his own power, his own might. It is the strength and power of God that both enables us to will to please him and to have the ability to please him. Because when we read here that we are to live a life worthy of the Lord, and we turned, if you'll recall, a couple weeks ago to all the texts that continually put that out there for us. If you are a follower of Christ, live worthy for him, pleasing to him. If you commit to that, it is no small undertaking. This is a very lofty task. God is perfectly holy, beyond our comprehension of holiness. No sin can be present without evoking his eternal wrath. So what are we to do? This is the issue facing Paul in Romans 7, and the answer is simple. Turn to God himself. And so in our text, we are reminded of the truth that Augustine prayed about, and that is that God grants what God demands, that God provides what he requires. He gives the strength. He gives the will. The Christian in verse 11 of our text says, is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Because up to now, it's been pretty easy to understand that prayer has been for understanding of God, an understanding of his desires for us in our lives, the Christians in Colossae. But now we're confronted with this truth, that we're actually too weak on our own. And we are reminded that to stand firm upon the truth, to bear fruit, to go share the good news of Jesus Christ with others, to live holy and set apart for him, in a society, in a culture that demands participation and approval and even celebration of sin, that we don't have that strength on our own. But we must depend on God. And we're always reminded of that. 1 Corinthians 10.12 gives us that same stark reminder. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, right, who thinks that on your own righteousness, your own knowledge, you can please God, let anyone who thinks that take heed lest he fall. Because when you're outside the bounds of Christ, you simply do not have the lasting strength. We're not as strong as we think that we are. We all know this. We spend too little time in the Word of God. We spend too little time in prayer. But that warning does come with a promise. It's in the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If we anchor ourselves in the Word of God, if we are willing to submit to the power, the authority of the living Christ, if we will cry out to God, then he will be there. We need not fall into a displeasing life, one full of sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God grants what God requires. But we must obey. There's no excuse here. God commands obedience and he grants the ability to obey him. We can reject that. But we're called to submit to him. Now, in our text, Paul starts that with this statement that we'll be being strengthened. And that just simply translates a word that is continuous in nature. This is not a one-time thing. It's not like our justification, where you are immediately justified. This is more sanctification, where it is ongoing throughout life. You need to be strengthened, right? The battle that we fight to walk by the Spirit, to walk in a way that is pleasing to our God, the battle against our flesh, that continues daily, moment by moment, throughout all of life. So we need this continuous reliance upon the strength of God. And the strength that is needed, the strength that Paul says will be provided, is beyond imagination. It is to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Well, what does that mean? We can turn to the prayer that Paul offered for the Christians in the church in Ephesus. Remembering that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians, both from prison in Rome, both around the same time. And here in this prayer, with all the same elements, he prays this way, Ephesians 1, verse 17 and 20, and pay particular attention as we get there to how he describes this power of God. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, the Christian walk is grounded in knowledge. We can't make up our own God as we go. Verse 18, we have that, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, all the same elements of our prayer in Colossians are there in the prayer for the Ephesians. But he goes much deeper in his description of the power of God to equip believers. It is the same awesome power of God that raised Jesus Christ victoriously from the grave three days after his crucifixion. It gives us the assurance, right? That resurrection gives us the assurance that that substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of believers that was made on the cross was sufficient, it was complete, and it was accepted by God to satisfy his wrath against our unrighteousness. And it is the power that comes with a great promise when we rely on him. For those who turn from sin, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who worship him, who follow him as Lord, we have this promise. Jesus, we look to, is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if you're found in him, you know that you will follow him after this short life. But where does this power come from? This is not a new age concept, right? That's what people look for today is the powers around us. It is a force of some sort. We can do these things. Bookstores are full of this stuff. Where does this power come from? For the Christian, it is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. This is why it becomes futile and worthless to be apart from Christ and yet try to obey Him. It is the Spirit working through the Bible, working through the fellowship of the members of the church that you are called together to worship with that enables Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the name. 
the name that we all claim, Christian, disciples of Christ, working to be like our master, submitting ourselves to him, Christian. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If hope sounds familiar to you, you can think back to Colossians 1.5, where Paul begins this by referring to the hope, and what comes from that hope is faith and obedience and the ability to intentionally and sacrificially love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 3.16 promises that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. And the Holy Spirit lets you be confused, indwells all believers. We won't turn there, but you know how Jesus answered the questions to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3. He made it very clear that without the Holy Spirit, without his regenerating work, without the new birth that comes through his work, then we remain dead in sin, unable to even see the kingdom of God. But if you believe, if you are one of his, then Christ dwells in you through the Holy Spirit, And he is the awesome power that God equips you through, through the knowledge of God's word. That's great. Equips you for what? That might be a good question. So we're equipped, but for what? We could turn all throughout scripture to say for what, right? Because we can go through all the commands and how we're meant to stand strong in the faith and be set apart and, and be ambassadors for Christ. But Paul actually points to two things in this text. This is what it is to equip you for. All endurance and patience, and both with joy, that comes only in Christ. Now, this this is the equivalent of just saying, grin and bear it. Give your life to Christ, and then grin and bear it, because life is going to be tough. I don't know if everybody's heard that saying, or if that's one of those sayings that just older guys know. But is that what it means? The Holy Spirit essentially telling his church, telling all the people who've committed life to following the risen Christ, who were told not to just come and all things will be provided for you, but no, we were told to count the cost of following him as his disciples. All who are saved by his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, also receive the message that to follow him, we must deny self and take up our own cross. Are we then just told, grin and bear it. Grin and bear it in this life. We know that Jesus told us that this life would not be easy. It would be a narrow path to follow him into eternal life. The gate is wide. Those are many who go through it, and it leads only to destruction. But if you follow Christ, you will receive eternal life, and it won't be easy. It'll be great, but not easy. You will be a changed man or woman. We know all of the texts, right? There's death to the old. You are alive in the new. You've been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. You've been born again, a new person. And you will be transformed as you go through this life. And the infinite benefit, the infinite joy that we receive in Christ does come with a finite, a limited in time cost. Because when you are transformed this way, You are no longer going to be invited where you once were. You will find that people don't want you around like they used to. Your desires change as well. You don't enjoy it. You will no longer be the life of that party. Your friends change. The places you go. The movies you enjoy. The music you listen to. The politics you support. All of these things change in the life of a believer. Because they now start seeing the world 
through the lens of the Word of God, given to us by the Holy Spirit as He works in our lives. And knowing that that is the only standard for truth and righteousness and what pleases Him. And so everything changes. And we call that a cost. That's a pretty minor one that we face in the West. It's like uh, the pain of a thumbs down on social media is so great for us. While others worship at the risk of their lives. But no, it's a cost no less. Jesus spoke a truth. He spoke many. He only spoke truth. But he spoke a truth that we see repeated thematically throughout Scripture. And he said this in John 15, verses 18 and 19. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now we have to first question ourselves, but we can also sort of look out there in the world and see how many profess Christ, that they love a Jesus, but actually they are loved by the world and they love the world and they oppose Christ and they stand in opposition to him with all that they behave and all that they support and then claim the name Christian. They actually hate God and his righteousness and his holiness, but they love a guy named Jesus that they've created. And so it gets mixed in. Jesus continues. He says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That is a tough truth, but it is an absolute statement. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, so grin and bear it. If you have your Bibles open, you know that last bit was mine, not his. Is that what we're told? Is that right? That's wrong. That's completely wrong. That is not what the power of God, the strength of the Almighty, wants us to do. You see that saying, grin and bear it? It has a meaning. It, according to Webster's, it means to accept something that one does not like because you have no choice. Or, according to Oxford, it is to suffer pain or misfortune in a stoical manner, without emotion, showing the world you don't feel pain, you don't feel joy. And here you begin to see a difference between those found in Christ and those found outside of Christ. You get different reactions to what the world throws your way. Uh, those outside, uh, for sure, feel thrown about by fate, right? A pagan concept. And they may grin and bear it. The toughest of them will grin and bear it. But the only joy that they will get from that is wrapped up in pride. The only joy that they will get from grinning and bear it is that other people will look to them and say, man, he or she is so tough. But they don't seem to be phased by that at all. And inside, they're a wreck. For the Christian, there's always joy. That's a tough one to swallow for anybody who's gone through hardship. But by the power of God, we can stand firm for him. We can stand planted in his word. We can face trials and tribulations with joy because we can rest on the eternal promises of God. We can have joy even in sorrow simply because we find our joy in Christ. It doesn't mean that we won't be sad at our loss. Because you can have patience you can have endurance that Paul points to without the joy in Christ, but ultimately what comes from that is depression, a defeatist attitude, a loss of optimism. Things just keep going worse. Woe is me. What's the difference for the Christian? The joy that a Christian has, is not, it's not being silly and ignorant and, and not facing the realities of loss and hardship and frustration and sorrow. The joy that we're talking about comes from knowing God is sovereign. God is ultimately and always 
in control. He's always working out his plan and his purpose, both for our life, but most importantly, for the grand plan of redemption as he works all things toward the end of history. He is always working through us and others to save and to sanctify and to purify and to make holy the church, his gathered people as the bride of Christ. And thus, this patience and endurance by the indwelling power of God produces optimism and triumph and trust in God, no matter what we face, whether it's a person or a situation. James 1, 2 and 4 say it this way, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials, it's not if you meet trials, it's not if you happen to be unlucky and meet trials. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Paul uses two words, right? We read them, endurance and patience. And if you walk as a disciple of Christ... By the power of the Holy Spirit, you will need strength from God to achieve both of these, endurance and patience. Endurance is translating a word for us here that points to how we patiently endure difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances. There's many places we could look. You can think, for example, though, of Philippians 4.13. Before I even read the verse, some of you will know that there is almost... No limit to the Christian merchandise you can get with Philippians 4.13. It's written on locker rooms. But many miss the point. They don't read the full context of that verse. They don't remember that it is the strength of God provided in difficult circumstances that allows one to be content, allows one to experience joy. And they forget that Paul wrote Philippians in jail in chains for preaching the good news of Christ, for being unwilling to waver even a tiny bit on the simplest of details, but remaining firmly committed to Christ. And so he wrote in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is enduring with joy and with contentment because the secret that Paul has found is that the strength to endure these difficult situations comes through Christ. Not through himself, not through something the world offers, but through Christ. Patience is the other word that he uses. This one's a little more difficult. Patience is referring not to difficult circumstances, but to difficult people. Difficult people. You see, difficult circumstances cause us much grief in life and much pain, but nowhere near the hurt, nowhere near the heartache, nowhere near the the anxiety, the friction, the anger that is caused by people. It's much more difficult. In fact, those of us who shy away from conflict We'll struggle with this because there's always a desire to please people, to fix the situation, to make the problem go away. We're warned about this time and time again. We remember in Galatians where Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We remember the warnings given in John by Jesus. 
Many believed in him, but for fear of being cast out of the synagogue, they would not admit that. They would not follow him. So many will choose their own comfort over the sufferings of Christ, but Jesus actually addressed this problem, this one that that is difficult for us. And it's more difficult, I think, preaching about this in the Midwest than if you're in New York City, right? Their people have no problem just charging in headlong, and they like conflict for the sake of conflict, and that's sinful as well. So we all struggle with this in some way, but Jesus addressed this early and directly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He said in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It is good when you read a verse like that to think that you have a whole Bible. Because if that was the only verse in the Bible, it would be pretty hard to get excited about this, right? I mean, what is one to do? What is one to do on this? You're receiving nothing but scorn and hatred and bad words about you for following Christ. Well, he answers it. You need to focus on eternal things. Jesus says in verse 12, you need to rejoice and be glad. You can pause there and... I'll just say, taking us back to Colossians, do you think that you'll need the strength of God to rejoice and be glad when you are the bigot, you are the small-minded one, you are the the backwards guy who believes the Bible, you're you're the one who's not getting with the times, whatever words that people come up with this? I think you will need the strength of God to stand firm for him. He says, rejoice and be glad when this happens, for your reward is great in heaven. It's going to be hard. But your reward is great in heaven, and that's where your focus should be. If you are ungrounded in Scripture, if you do not know Christ as he has revealed himself, it's going to be nearly impossible to grasp how one could have joy and endure this hardship that comes directly from often those you love or those you admire or those you respect. But yet you're called to rejoice. Because if you know him as he has revealed him in Scripture, you can suffer through that. You can have joy in Christ. You know your reward is in heaven. You know that he is sovereign. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is in control. And you don't have to step back and look for vindication that your honor or your pride will be lifted up. That is not what we're called to do. In fact, he tells us in Romans, right? Vengeance is mine. Leave it to God. He will take care of that. What we need to look forward to is the day that we, will, we won't stand, the day we will kneel, the day we will fall on our faces before him. And we look to him. And hopefully we will be able to say to him, Lord, it was not by my strength as we cast our crown at his feet. It was not by my strength, but by your strength, Jesus, that I was able to follow you, that I was able to stand firm, that I didn't compromise. And you, you even gave me the joy of partaking in the smallest of ways the suffering that you endured to save me. And you hope, I hope anyway, that on that day I will hear those words, Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master for all eternity. It's always going to be difficult. But in Christ, we have the power if we will focus on eternal things. All throughout Scripture, it points to this difficulty that we face in this world. The Apostle Peter gives us some encouragement. He knew exactly what it was to live the Christian life in a world that rejected and rebelled against God. We know that, that 
that line that gets used often for apologetics, the, the be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but that comes in the face of suffering and persecution. And why do you have hope? But here's what he says in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do you see that again? We are told time and again, it will come. It'll be minor for some of us. It'll be major for some of us. But it will come. Do not be surprised by it as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. You need the power of God for that. None of us can rejoice on our own in hardship. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, endurance in difficult situations, patience in dealing with challenging people, these are true marks of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for everything, who can rely truly upon the power of God, on his promise to carry us through, to strengthen us. Paul suffered more than most. You can see the catalog of that in 2 Corinthians where he talks about how many arrests, how many shipwrecks, how many beatings, all of these things. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Any one of those would cause us to tremble in our weakness today. They do this by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Something in that text I want us all to see as we face difficult times. What you see in this text as Paul gets to the end of it is that nothing is measured against the standards of this world in his life. It's not riches, it's not leisure, it's not status, it's not power, it's not position. None of these things are what makes him tick or keeps him going. It's not his fame or that is a measure of a life well lived. There is no lasting joy in that. It is all continually pointing back to Christ. We know there's no lasting joy in some of these things. We can give many examples, but if you want an example of how there is no lasting joy in fame and money, just do some reading about Hollywood. You've got more fame and money there, and yet there's always a hunger for more. There's no satisfaction in it. The depravity has no end. Now, joy is only found in Christ. You cannot find your joy in what the world offers. We know that you can even enjoy the blessings that God gives you and for a time remain thankful. But when you take your eyes off Christ, even those blessings start to become hardships 
start to be temptations because we start envying what somebody else has. We start wanting something else or we take pride in achieving what we've achieved. And soon they become burdens rather than joys. Everything must be measured according to Christ. That's where the true joy comes from. The ability to endure, the ability to have patience, to live life to its fullest in that sense, because you can have joy in all circumstances, that ability is a direct result of who you trust. That ability is a direct result of where or from whom your strength derives. And that takes us full circle to the way this prayer began. And this is where it's such a struggle for people. Because this fanciful, fictional, prosperity type Jesus that people want to cling to because of the promise in this life, this false Jesus, the one who is all love but no justice whatsoever, all tolerance but no wrath, no holiness. He is a great friend, but he is not Lord. That Jesus is not the God of Scripture. That is a false Jesus. That is an idol who who can provide you with nothing more than what a rabbit's foot provides to a pagan who's hoping for good luck. So this takes us full circle because it is the reason why Paul so earnestly prays that the Christians would be filled with knowledge of God's will, that they would be so grounded in sound doctrine and biblical truth that then they would be fully equipped and empowered to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him in every situation in life, not just the good situations. It is the Spirit-inspired Word of God that The Holy Spirit himself illuminates in our hearts, and that's what increases faith. And that is what is required for us to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And it is the only thing that will fuel our joy as we deal with difficult circumstances. Because it is there that we're able to rely on the promises of God, the God who cannot lie. And when we can rely on his promises and derive that strength from him, you can live in a way that pleases him. But there's a catch. You cannot even begin to know this joy. You cannot even begin to know God unless you have relinquished yourself, given up your pride, and turned to Him and been given life through Jesus Christ in a knowledge of Him. Jesus said in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. If you had known me, You would have known my Father also. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. And through Christ, God has made Himself known to us, which is why we must know Him. And so will you be a partaker of this divine nature? Will you turn from sin and seek the mercy of God that comes through Christ? The forgiveness of sins and life made available to us by His perfect life. The Son of God in the flesh, in His vicarious, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross for all who will follow Him. We'll close here. He said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. What a promise. Rich in joy every day. Rich in love. Rich in worship. Rich in a desire to be pleasing to Him, to gather together. Rich in our adoption as God's children. Rich because in Christ you may have life and life 
abundantly rich because though you were once dead in your sins and condemned for all eternity, you have eternal life in Christ Jesus who works all things for the good of those who are called to believe in him, to be conformed to his image, to be sanctified and to one day be glorified with him for all eternity. That is the blessed hope. That is where our joy derives from in living in the strength of God. And so we always ask ourselves, will we and can we turn to his word? Can we live a life that is pleasing to God the Father, through God the Son, by the work of God, the Holy Spirit in us? Because no one who comes to him, no one who comes to him, repenting of sin and seeking his great mercy, will ever be turned away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the strength that you have promised to provide us with. And Lord, we're so grateful that it is not a one-time thing, but that each and every moment of every day that we can call out to you, acknowledging our weakness, looking to you to fulfill that great promise that in our weakness, your strength would be known to all. Lord, we need that strength daily. We need it moment by moment. Oh, how we long as your people, to live life that is pleasing to you, to walk in accordance with your word, to walk by the power of the Spirit. And Lord, we need you. We long for your mercy. We trust in your justice. You are an awesome God, and we fear your holiness. Lord, we thank you for the redemption available through your Son. We did not come deserving, but we beg and plead for your mercy. And we rest in your promise that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we pray, Lord, as we go out in the week among our colleagues and friends and family, that we would indeed be a light to them, a light through which Christ's love and his glorious sacrifice shines through, that we are enabled and empowered to speak the words of truth, to call for repentance, to call for truth, to never accept lies. Lord, help us shine in this world and shine with your glory and bring people to the word of truth, your Bible, the Holy Scriptures. Give us a desire to know you. And we pray for that continuous work of the Holy Spirit in us to transform us by the power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.